Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome Terry Gilliam. Enough of that stuff. Uh, actually, we are going to be providing hats for all of you to throw up in afterwards. <laughs> At least some of the reviewers felt that about this film you're about to see, uh, which is great. In fact, those are the reviews I actually like the most because the ones who don't get it sometimes tell you more about what you've done and succeeded at doing than the ones who do get it. Um, what can I say? I'm, supposed, I'm just supposed to introduce 12 Monkeys, so I'm not going to talk to you about anything else. Uh, um, this film was smuggled to me, really, by uh, an executive at Universal uh, two, about two years ago. And, uh, and the idea of Universal being interested in making a film with me again was just almost too ironic to, to pass up. Um, the person that really deserves almost the most credit and hasn't re received much credit about this film is Chuck Roven, the producer. Uh, he has many attributes. One of them is that he's mar been married to Don Steele for many years um, and survived. And uh, he... And unfortunately, he's lived in her shadow because she's been always associated with these very so-called popular films, uh, these lower culture pop popular films. And despite her success, he's sort of maintained a uh, desire to make interesting films. And he was the one that got David and Jan Peoples to look at Chris Marker's film, La Jete, a film which I still haven't seen, um, and, um, and think about making a film about it. And they wrote the script. He shepherded it through Universal. They got it to me. Um, he managed to keep Universal interested, despite it, my involvement. Um, and he's really, really been the man behind this film, and he deserves a lot of credit, and he's not here. He died yesterday. Uh, but <laughs> uh, that's a lie. And it's... Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's there's something about retrospectives make me feel like you know, there's a kiss of death is hanging in the air here. You know, it's like this is like lifetime achievement awards. <laughs> it's that's one step in the grave when these things start happening to you. Uh, um, what about twelve? What el what else can I say about Twelve Monkeys? I, I, actually, just out of curiosity, have any of you seen it already? Great, that's amazing. Because I was trying to get Universal to offer a deal. Uh, to cinema goers, because I thought the film is better the second time, and, and it really does take a couple of viewings to get as much out of it as, as one ought to. And so I was trying to get them to offer deals for the price of one and a half tickets. You could get two tickets to see the film, and and they wouldn't do it. But I, it, it would it have been it was a good marketing idea, I really think. And it's because people do have to come back to see this thing um, more than once. Um, what can I say? Well, I've got to say some things about it. I, I don't want to tell you too much about it, um, except that, except that uh, I think I got it mostly right. I mean, it was one of those films that I was scared shitless when we were making it because I didn't know what we were doing half the time. It has a, a circularity that you'll see in it that we constantly lost track of where we were when we were shooting. We thought, well, I've done this one before, haven't I? We've done that scene. No, no, sh no, we haven't done this. Cause there's, and there's always this extra bit of information that we didn't know whether we needed or we could get rid of, whether we could ignore. And Mick Audsley, the editor, always said, listen, 
the big adventure starts when we get back in the cutting room, so let's pack as many socks as possible for that part of the adventure. So we shot everything, not knowing whether we'd use it or not. In fact, very little that we shot isn't in the film. Things have been reordered, because what's interesting about a film, especially one like this, because it's so complex, you start with the plan, you work, work forward, things happen along the way that sort of divert you and confuse you. Uh, you keep plugging away, and then at the end of the whole process, you go back to the editing rooms back in London, a long way away from Hollywood, 6,000 miles to be exact, and a long way away from executives and, and people who are really interested in trying to help us out on making a good film. Um, and we get... And, and then we start playing with these pieces, and one, one tries to be very, very respectful of what we intended to do. On the other hand, the film starts speaking to you after a while and says, this is the way it's got to go. And so we've, we've shifted dreams around in the course of the thing. We've taken scenes. What was interesting, we kept finding many scenes. We'd find that the very last line of the scene was better as the first line of the scene, so we, we do things like that. And we, and we had one... one I, I hate audience research screenings, because they're just such painful experiences when people who have a lot of spare time and can hang around in shopping malls come and decide what America watches in the cinema. And it's, and it's, and, and that's, I hate them, but nevertheless, we did have a couple in, in Washington, and we did learn things from it because there's a certain pressure from different quarters to make the film more romantic. Um, and their idea of romance was not necessarily mine, and it was, it was a more sentimental, obvious, cheap romance. And we, we found we tried to do this, and, and the audience, for better or worse, they, they didn't buy it. And it was an interesting process because we found that we were under pressure to make it then more romantic. No, I said, no, no, the problem is make it less romantic. Pull the things out. Let the audience decide. Leave room for the audience to decide what's going on rather than trying to tell them what they should be thinking and feeling at every point. And that's what we've tried to do. So it's a film that you've really got to engage yourself in it. You've got to work. We've done a lot of the work, but you've got to do as, almost as much as we did. <laughs> but hopefully at the end of it, because you've invested more than you do in most, most films, you often get more back in return. That's my theory anyway. And um, so I think it's time for you to go to work and me to go and do something else. <laughs> Thanks. very interesting because the perception is that Munchausen was this great financial over-budget disaster, one of the greatest of all times. If you look at Roger Ebert's history of the cinema, it's supposed to be one of the most um, expensive films ever made. It's not true. The film cost about $40 million. Um, the budget was 23 and a half. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and then I discovered subsequently that other people who have never been blamed for going over budget have gone over far more, but they've been within the studio system and all been hushed up. I mean, film Neil Jordan made called We're No Angels, and it went over budget more than Munchausen went, and nobody ever noticed this simple fact. And what happened here was, when it came out, uh, you get caught in these things. We got caught into one of those situations where the people that were at the studio when we began were no longer there. It's a change of regime, and there is a tendency for the new regime to have less interest in the old regime's work, because your work shines a bit more and more than the previous regime has failed. And, uh, but I, I worked very hard at convincing them. And here's the argument. Let's get, get it right up there. Dawn Steele was the president of the Columbia Pictures at that time. Her husband is Charles Roman, the producer of Charles Monkey. But, uh, and Dawn, uh, I spent a long time trying to 
convinced that this film was not a David Putnam film, that she could make it her film. And, and towards that end, I actually, and it's the only time I actually feel I betrayed something about myself, is that I cut the film down to two hours. And I think it would be better maybe two hours and three minutes. Uh, and it's a small thing, may not be two hours and two minutes, but there's certain pacing things that I did in there that made it a bit frenzied to try to get down to this magical two hours so that they would embrace the film and release it. And so I, I did, I trimmed a bit more than I would have hoped to. The film came out and they got the best reviews they'd had since Last Emperor. It was doing the best business they'd had since Last Emperor. All very exciting. And the second week of its release, which was only in 53 cinemas it was, um, there was a secret meeting and at the time the company was trying to sell itself to Sony. And a guy named Victor Kaufman was running the show and it was, became an accounting exercise about how you decide not to spend money to balance the books. And they pulled the plug out of Munchausen. And there have only been, in this country, 117 prints of the film ever made, which is, you know, our film goes out and gets 400 prints. So the film was basically never released. It, it played in the big cities, and they pulled the plug out. So I have no idea what it would have done had it been released properly, but the countries where it was released properly and, and had the backing of the um, distributors, it did it for the only will. Even after they said, well, after Munchausen, I'll never work for uh, Columbia again. Fisher King was made for a different regime, but for... Well, it was actually probably TriStar, a sister company, but it was always the same house. Um, but that just seems to keep happening. What happens is, there's always at any moment, there's somebody out in Hollywood that likes what I do, and they, you know, they work their way into positions of some power, and I've always had a patron of one form or another that gets me through the next stage. I also... After Brazil and Munchausen, I was like the really bad boy of Hollywood. Even though I'm, I don't know why I keep saying it, or why, why I keep saying it, because I'm not of Hollywood, but uh, the bad boy of movies. And, and yet there's always some, somebody in the case of Linda Obst and Deborah Hill, who did Fisher King, where the, they, they kind of wanted to be the people who could tame the wild beasts. And, and, and to be artistic, because they think I'm that. Neither, neither of those things is correct about me. <laughs> um, and, and so there's a certain, certain cachet in, in dealing with the troublesome guy and trying to whip him into shape. So I take advantage of those people and make another <laughs> 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 well, Monkey's Man has that got Because a few weeks ago, we had you know, Robert Tanner in Chinatown and was saying that they, they could never, Hollywood would never make Chinatown again like, you know, these days. And um, when you look at Brazil, you think, well, that kind of film will never be made. But the fact is, 12 Monkeys was made, was made by Universal. Yeah. Um, you were, I, you were talking to um, Charlie Rose the other night about how you were reluctant at first to put big stars in the movie because you thought that might blow the budget up too much. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely correct. I mean, because I felt when we had this script that the thing was to try to keep the budget down, which then takes the pressure off you and it suggests more ease. Uh, their investment is less. This one was really interesting because it was just a series of events uh, because the studio. The guy named Casey Silver, and, and, I mean, I used to think of Hollywood as this monolithic place, and sometimes I wish I continued to think of him like that, it's easier, and, and just say, they're all guilty until proved innocent. Uh, and now, unfortunately, I know too many people out there, some of them are quite nice, and they can lure you down paths you don't really want to go because they're nice people. Uh, but, it's, but this one, uh, Casey Silver is a big fan of David Peebles, and David Unforgiven, Blade Runner, and so they got Dave and Jen contracted to write for Universal. So 
then Chuck got um, children with Lajete. So they wrote the script, but, and so the Universal had a, uh, an investment in this film. There was a good chunk of money paying for this, and not cheap writers. So they've got already an investment that they've got to get back. And then when it came to me, uh, they were intrigued by that because Casey Silver was a guy who had actually brought Monty Python to Universal. We had a development deal there. So again, there was something he could say he was trying to prove that his taste was correct. So each time we get a little deeper in this thing, and, um, and I thought we were going to go ahead uh, on that basis and without uh, big names. But the caution began to creep into this thing. Maybe I, it's because I'm very bad at these meetings rather than reassuring people on what an easy film is going to make and how much everyone's going to love it. I keep saying, you're really brave. This is so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and I get some nervous. This is a very stupid approach on my part. But, uh, it's, uh, but it's more fun. <laughs> so, uh, so he got more and more nervous and started throwing these name stars. And I said, no, I walked away. And then, Bruce came up several weeks later and I said that's a good idea. And then we moved. So now we've got Bruce Willis and we've got this thing and it's, just, and it's a reasonable budget. The other thing that made the budget even more reasonable was half the money. This film came from Germany, Japan, England, and France. So Universal probably is an investment of only $14 million in this film starring Bruce, Madeline, and Brad for all the world except those four territories. Now that's the best bargain on the planet today. And so they have on just a pragmatic level, they're comfortable. And they can spend money promoting it. So each film seems to have its own scenario, how it gets made. And, uh, and we were lucky to get it through this way. I mean, they couldn't believe when Brad became involved because Brad wanted to be in this film. He had been following it for some time, and, and I didn't even want to meet him because I just knew it was wrong to the part. And, was, and he came to London, and we met, and I liked him, and his enthusiasm, and his determination to escape from the blonde bimbo role was, was, it's pretty hard to say no to somebody like that. And then I said yes, and the studio couldn't believe their luck. You know, the hottest guy on the planet in the film. And uh, it's, I just like the fact that here are these guys with all this power and money and stars who are trying to escape from all these very successful traps that they've fallen into. They can keep going on making the same old thing, making a lot of money, but I think the smart ones know how limited that is as time runs out. And, and they're more and more of them trying to find ways of proving to the world that they're actors, not just stars. And so we were the beneficiaries of that. Uh, I want to jump back a bit. Um, there, will be, I, there will be time. We have about an hour for the discussion. There will be plenty of time for questions from the audience. Um, just wanted to cover some of your life story. Uh, you said you once said that you instead of being the kind of person who uh, would follow the advice go west, young man, you've always been going east. Yeah. You grew up uh, after moving from Minneapolis, uh, you grew up in Los Angeles basically, and you moved to New York and then moved to London. What can you tell us about the um, uh, the time in Los Angeles when you exposed it, or, or what your movie going was like as a, as a child growing up? I don't know, I, mean, I, just, I just went to movies. I never thought of them as anything other than movies. You just went and had a great time. You went to the dark place and these magic worlds appeared. And you could, you know, it could be anywhere, anytime. I, mean, I, I loved, I basically loved big epics. I loved, you know, biblical epics because it was a chance to escape from what seemed to be a rather mundane, predictable world to these 
extraordinary places with you know, funny costumes and, and, and lots of you know, monsters to kill. I, I, I actually, what I think was a bigger influence in movies for me was radio. Because I grew up in, in Minnesota, before we had a television, we had radio. And there was something that was just extraordinary about radio because it's storytelling without any sets, costumes, places, and you've got to invent all of that. I think it's a great exercise for your imagination. And I, I was just addicted to radio. Uh, and then along came television. But the movies in LA always, I mean, they, they always fascinated me. I think the thing, the movie that I remember the most as being something that changed my attitude towards the movies was uh, Paths of Glory. And I was about 15. And I was at a Sunday matinee out in Panorama City, kids matinee. And for whatever reason, I mean, they were showing Paths of Glory. Why they have a matinee for that? I don't know. <laughs> kids were running up and down the aisles, and this extraordinary, you know, the story was, was, was being told me, and I just was stunned. I said, oh, movies can do that. You know, they're not just about Martin Lewis, which I loved. You know, I love all, all Disney's cartoons. I just loved movies, and I was very eclectic and not very uh, judgmental. Or, but Path of Glory made me think, oh, God, you can actually, the world's unfair, and uh, the world can be a dark place, and the world, you know, injustice can occur. And, uh, that's extraordinary. I remember running around trying to tell my friends about this movie. None of them saw it and seen it. They didn't know what I was talking about. But uh, that was the one that really twisted me. <laughs> you uh, moved to New York where you worked uh, in cartooning and advertising. Uh, when did you start? When did you start drawing and becoming becoming uh, artist? <laughs> so I, mean, I, mean, I, mean, I draw. Let's keep it simple. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I always drew. I mean, as a kid, I just drew. I mean, it's one of those things you did. And the great thing about cartooning is, and drawing is, I think people think it's magic. If you write, nobody's very impressed with that because everybody thinks they can write. There's writing, there's writing. But drawing is, there it is. And you draw the thing is, wow. And so I've always been a sucker for immediate feedback. And so the business of drawing funny little cartoons and getting people say, well, aren't you clever? And, and things like that. Just encourage me to continue doing that. And, and, and then I, I used to do things like, I love building sets for plays and the, the senior prom, you know, I built a castle for the entrance thing. And they're still doing, doing that as people in their tuxes were arriving. And I just, and, I, and, and, you know, plays, I would, you know, in school I'd always be in plays. But I was always making things. The great thing is my father was a carpenter. But he worked for Charles Manville putting up portable partitions, movable partitions, and they were in four by eight corrugated cardboard boxes, which are the best thing if you're going to make castles and sets. <laughs> great big sheets of corrugated cardboard, which lay out in the backyard and make these things. But what I think, what, again, another, if we're going to go on well, turning points in a young man's life, <laughs> uh, was when I was working. Uh, Way through college, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and it's, it's, in my junior year, I was working in the Chevrolet assembly line at Van Nuys on the night shift. And I said, This is mindless. This, these cars kept going around at 52 cars an hour. Was that? So, and I, I had to clean out on the right hand side of the car, all the glass on the right hand side, I had to clean with ammonia. Inside and outside, there's a time when the windscreens are really sloped back because they're getting really rakish. You're inside, in the middle of the heat, so. Rubbing this, all these china markers off the, the inspectors put on the car, 
and I made mine really sleek. It was so beautiful. It was about a month later I discovered they went around and somebody else marked these things up, and so my entire existence was, as far as I see, pointless. I was <laughs> somebody else's scribble on the and I said, that's it. And I quit. I said, I'm never going to work for money in my life again. And I'm never going to do anything I don't have total control of. And I, I set those rules that I've actually been able to stick by. I mean, it's, it's really interesting because it makes life easier in a strange way. Because all the doors shut immediately. <laughs> 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 well, that's great. <laughs> and so, what do you do? Okay, well, I can still draw. And so, I do cartoons and people would buy them. And then that led eventually, you know, way, way down the line, years millennia later, um, in a, in being in a situation where, which we're probably, this is the life story, but, uh, <laughs> ending up, and, and ending up doing some animation, which led into Python, and then from Python into directing films. Yeah. Uh, you, you talked about college days, you were in New York for um, a few years in the early 60s, and mm -hmm. talked about that as being, uh, being important. Yeah, yes. what, what do you remember from that? I mean, first it was just getting away from home and going to the Big Apple and living like, you know, I don't, I don't remember reading all these books about 19th century artists in garrets and things like that. But somewhere, maybe I've seen them in the movies. But there I was, you know, living in a really rotten, cockroach-infested garret at my Columbia University. And I was making $50 a week, which is $2 less than I'd make on the dole. But I was working for Harvey Kurtzman, Health Magazine, which one of my great heroes. That's just great. And out of 50, I was saving 25 a week, which I eventually bought my first Bolex camera and a tape recorder. I don't know how I was doing all this stuff, but it was, it was like living the role of an artist. And I actually had my pet cockroach, which uh, <laughs> appeared in some of my cartoons later. <laughs> uh, and it was a strange and, and really painful time, which I think probably uh, scarred me in the, to produce things like Brazil and all of that. I mean, this sort of nightmare relationship with the city and. Uh, that. But on one hand, it was, it was very freeing, and the other hand, it was totally frustrating because I didn't seem to be able to do what I really, I kept wanting to make movies, but I didn't know how you did that. So uh, these friends, once I had my little Bolex, every Saturday, we'd, with a three-minute uh, roll of film, we'd run out and invent a movie, depending on what the weather was or whatever. It was very, we'd write one and go and perform it and film it. And we used to sit, I remember doing animation that way as well. We would we'd go around the, the, the dustbins and get, old bits of film, and then we'd scratch on them, each frame, and make little animated sequences that would go, and it was pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> but you kind of learning something in the course of all this. You're learning anger, I think is what I've been learning. <laughs> Hatred for society, and well, <laughs> powerful people that I've never been able to deal with subsequently. Um, yeah. um, was there any influence at all on what was going on in New York underground film? movement at the times in the 60s, um, the kind of collage style animation that developed. Well, I think, I think I remember seeing somewhere projected on a sheet in somebody's <laughs> uh, flat or something, it was a Stan Vanderbeek mm -hmm. cartoon. And he was the first time I ever seen cut out animation. And it was, I remember, it was, I don't know what the film was about, but there was Richard Nixon photographed him with a foot in his mouth that was going to get it out. And I thought it was outrageously funny and just right. So when years later, I was still trying to, when I did animation, was um, you know, Disney style, fully animated cells. Um, so that years later when I was in London and still drawing fucking cartoons. <laughs> and just, and just uh, when I was on a show doing the um, characters of the guests 
and they had some material they didn't know how to present. So I said, why don't they make an animated film? And they had, I had two weeks to do it in, mm -hmm. I think 400 pounds. And the only way I could do it at that time was to use cutouts. And so it was actually, I won't explain what it was, but it involved a, a famous <laughs> DJ, radio DJ. So I got all these pictures of them and they just did silly things with these cutouts. And nobody had seen that before on British television. So I was hailed as an inventor of a new style of animation. And, uh, and that's, that's the power of television, you do something like that, especially in a country. Is limited in its. Uh, at the time, there were only basically three television stations. So the power of that going out there, millions of people seeing your stuff, was incredible. And the results were always was instantaneous. Within the week, I had all these offers and all this other stuff. Um, I'm going to just force you to talk about one more turning point, which is the move out of the United States. Uh, it was a very turbulent political time when a lot of people were disenchanted with society. They decided to move. To yeah, what? I inhaled for Bill. After New York, I was like for about three years in New York, and uh, um, I just finally, at the end, the magazine collapsed, and uh, I managed to have a thousand dollars, I'd say. So I said, I'm off to Europe. This, Go East Young Man Theory of Life. And I just bummed around Europe for six months and I just fell in love with myself. It was a great eye opener because suddenly I saw the world from other people through other people's eyes, other perspectives than the American perspective. I thought even though we were in America and I was well educated and I was reading all the best newspapers and everything, I thought I understood the world and America's role in it and its other people's perception of America. I walk out of America into Europe and hello. It's a very different world out there. And, and well, the joke was I was actually very much against the war. I was very critical of everything the government was doing and found myself defending America against the Spanish peasants, and I, whose, whose opinions I actually agreed with totally. But how dare they talk about my country, <laughs> right or wrong, my country. And it's, but there's something about the diversity of Europe that really just intrigued me. And it's a very nice feeling to walk through a world where everybody's speaking a language you don't understand. There's, there's a kind of freedom within that. And, being a stranger. Um, and I fell in love with architecture. There was a sense of being part, once I was in Europe with history around you 24 hours a day, a sense of you know, this continuum that America doesn't have, because America seems to be trying to reinvent itself immediately. I mean, it doesn't matter who your father was, it doesn't matter who your grandfather was, nothing seems to matter. But there you just felt, oh, I'm part of a very long thing that's been going on. I'm not so important, but I'll do my own bit within that. And it's, uh, and it was castles, really. Castles on hills that everybody went for. <laughs> I mean, they were better than Disneyland they were created. These were real. You know. But anyway, eventually I came back, and it was really to test myself to see if I really wanted to stay in America. So I was here about a year and a half. I worked in advertising. Actually, I was working with... Um, my illustrating days were, were, were becoming less and less uh, remunerative. And Joel Siegel, the famous critic, tell television critic with one of my old friends. And in fact, the very first cartoon I'd ever had published was an idea by him. And he was now working in an ad agency and he got me in because I had long hair. And, and the agency needed a long hair uh, in their place. And a subject art director and a copywriter. And the last job we had there, Joel and I were doing ad adverts for Universal Pictures. So it's just like, away from Universal. What's going on in my life? Universal keeps calling me back. So but that's, I remember doing 
And we hated the job. It's like Richard Whitmark did the film called Madigan. And the kind of things we're throwing back at Universal. Once he was happy, but now he's mad again. We <laughs> just hated his job. And, and, and I, I, I became more and more. I was loving living in Los Angeles. There was, there was a time before things were named that I liked so much, before hippies existed, before any of the, the great flower power revolution occurred. It had no name, but it was happening. It was great. And I was enjoying it. And then. Uh, I got more and more disillusioned because I got involved in kind of police riots and things like that. And, and I, it was like one of those things, just, well, I'm, I can't stay here, I can't deal with the place. I'm going to be you know, a full-time activist, I'm going to be a terrorist. So I, and I don't think I'm good at that, I think I'm better at drawing silly cartoons. <laughs> and, I, and I was living with a English girl who wanted to go home, so I said, that's it, I can't go. Anyway. Um, could you talk about the working atmosphere, collaborative atmosphere on Money Python? Or instead of going into a directing career where you're the single uh, central creative figure, you're working in very collaborative situations. I mean, that, well, that's what I, I don't think there's anything, I don't know if anything's been quite like Python because we were in an ex extremely um, rare situation where the BBC at that time was a very laissez faire organization. And we had complete control of everything we did. There was no director or producer saying what we could or shouldn't do. There were no market research people. There were no worried executives. We got into a situation where we, the six of us, did the show. And, and again, because we were writing and uh, appearing in it, we had this total, total of control. So what it was all about was just about what made the six of us laugh. It was as simple as that. And you don't get that very often. You, normally there's so many other forces sort of partaking in the decision-making process, but if the six of us laughed, and it went, if we didn't go. And also we had the situation of having to churn out half an hour every week, which meant a lot of material that, given more time to think about, we might have lost confidence in and not done. We had to throw in, just keep filling this thing up. And some of that material was often the best stuff because it was so way out there, and, and who knew whether it worked or not, but it did. So that was an extraordinary time. I think we all, you know, everybody was in their you know, late 20s, or pushing 30, and so we'd done a lot of work by then, so we were fairly skilled in our, in our jobs. And, and we chose to be together. And we, no, again, no force chose us. We chose each other, we respected each other. And the working was bitter and awful. <laughs> but, but, I mean, and we just laughed, and there was, you know, there was all the things that would happen in a very tight community. But, but the show was all ultimately counted, so everything took uh, back seat to that. It was I, in many ways, I was the luckiest because what would happen, everybody, you know, Mike and Terry wrote together, Graham and John wrote together, Eric wrote on his own, and I did my stuff on my own. But they would all bring in their material, and we had these sessions that would all be read out, and the stuff that everybody agreed on, what did that pile uh, into meeting stuff went there, and the people had problems with went there. But they all had to read out the material in front of the group, except for me, because my stuff was you know, unreadable. Uh, it didn't exist even though, but I had this, I had this very wonderful, this, this incredible freedom to take off from a certain point where they got stuck and, and get us to a point where they were starting up again. And it was very nice to have those kind of parameters to work within and then just sail around within that. So I was, I was the luckiest because they didn't know until the day of the show what I was doing. I tell them, there it is, folks. And luckily, John is so easily illiterate, he didn't know what it was good or bad. <laughs> so, where he could attack Terry Jones and the other medium height people. Um, he didn't know what to say to me. <laughs> um, 
never want to have, have a, it's frightening in a way with it to be suddenly so long and get co-directed by the Holy Grail, but to be um, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't frightening because I was so arrogant and so <laughs> full of myself, so happy to escape from the group and, and the pressures because when we were making Grail, it was a constant fight going on because I, I felt my job was to translate what they had written in a visual sense and yet the others didn't understand. And also, I think I'd been on my own for so long doing the animation, I, I couldn't actually... I know social skills anymore. I have no to speak uh, and explain. I didn't have the patience because these are the paper and never talked back. It didn't give me any trouble. When I stuck him down, they stayed down. <laughs> and so it was, it was, it was and also that because of my distorted eyes, I was trying to force people into these frames that uh, worked fine for a cartoon, but not for real people. I mean, that really did happen on Jabberwock. I, I drew my storyboards because of the way I draw cartoons, you know, I exaggerate the head, the body's smaller, and I was like, come on! They never did, that's why I tied back, this is a breakthrough, because I got guys in the right shape. But what was great, what was the, the surprise to me was like being a director, and you go out there, there's Maxwell the King, who is one of the great, great British comics of all time, uh, John LeBecher, these were like giants in the world of comedy. And I would say, lie down there, and I'm going to dump all this dirt on you. And they would do it. And it was extraordinary. And I just only realized the power a director has at that point. The Vikings would never submit to that kind of thing. But it was, a, it was a strange kind of film. Again, the, the, I suppose it's emblematic of the kind of weird arrogance I had. Because here I'm making a, a medieval movie that is very comedic, but not totally, uh, with at least three Pythons involved, and was putting it out in front of critics and the public and expected not to be judged like Monty Python the Holy Grail. And, and of course it was, and it, uh, it fell short, it's not as funny, but it wasn't my intention to do something as funny, and yet I got lambasted for that one. Uh, but I, and I couldn't understand, I remember even writing a letter to New York film critics trying to explain that this is not a Monty Python film. Hopefully you won't judge it as such, but if anything it's more of an homage to medieval painters like Bruegel and Bach. And I was just I was just ripped apart by, by the critics, first of all, for daring to suggest that they might not understand the film. <laughs> or and, or to compare, compare myself anyway to Bruegel and Bosch. And so I was a uh, pillory for that one. Uh. This is a kind of more general question, but you, as an animator, where you start from scratch and anything in your imagination can basically be there on the screen, and you, uh, I mean, do you feel that you kind of visualize and have the whole film in your head, and then you can get it onto the screen, but you can't get your complete vision on there, or do you feel you're adding as you're going along? I'm not. I'm beginning to be suspicious about these complete visions that I hear about. <laughs> I don't think it's ever been that clear ever. I mean, like even when I was doing animation, I'd have an idea, but I even do a little storyboard, and then. Because of my you know, lack of time or sheer laziness, I would try to find photographs or drawings or things that already existed that I could then use. And of course, they would never be quite what I intended. And yet along the way, what developed was something more interesting. And that's really the way the films have gone. In the same way, I have ideas, very definite ideas, but then as they develop, as we can't find a location we really want or we can't get that actor or whatever, it changes and shifts. And, and I've just gotten more happy and I fight less when those uh, frustrations occur. I got to sort of ride those things and see where they're going to lead. Um, I mean, at the early days it was much harder because again I was so determined I was going to do it this way, and I kept hitting. 
I had against the wall, but I was you know, younger, but now I'm in my dot age here, in all the years of my life, <laughs> and more graceful. <laughs> Can you talk about the shift in the, uh, in the last two films, what's been really beautiful about watching Fisher King in this film is seeing you dealing with uh, real locations, locations mm. in the Northeast, and we're all kind of familiar with, uh, and that's a bit from the, the trilogy, which was very much the yeah. fantasy oriented. Uh, could you talk about kind of fantasy? Well, it was partly, partly was, it was a response to the fact that I can't say, oh, you know, the reviews I'd get in comments was, they were always talking about the look of the film and selling about the acting in the film or the characters. They all seemed to be uh, secondary to the, what they thought I was about in the film. That wasn't really true, but I thought, okay, we'll show you guys. <laughs> and I'd strip all the visual stuff out of the way. Now it's a good deal with characters, and you can see I actually can work with actors and tell you know, stories with some emotion, emotional content. And that was really, it was almost that was how I stepped into Fisher King. And I, I mean, it was also partly because having come from the debacle of Munchausen and all the nightmare that went on, I was really incredibly impressed and I just lost confidence in my own uh, ideas and my own uh, ambitious uh, plans. And I was just brooding around for a long time and the script came in. Right, because I just understood it, because I knew those people, I said, those thoughts, they're my thoughts. And they, but it was told without the need for all these great special effects and visuals. And so, here we go. And, it was, and, it, and the great thing was, you're getting, again, it was a containable thing, it was basically four people. And, and it, was, it was a real joy, because you get you cast well, you get the right people. And then, I, the, I just wanted the characters to to dictate everything. That. Of course, it doesn't quite go like that because I still have to go under a Manhattan Bridge to replace the bums hang out. I mean, it was written as a little alleyway and they like the apartment that Jeff has was just going to be a loft downtown. But no, I had to turn it into this great sleek metallic uh, because, because there's no way of stopping it. I just thought with that story, there's two ways of doing it. You can do it the way Rob Ryder might or, or, or even Woody Allen, which would be fairly straight. You'd shoot New York you'd straight across like that, just people down the streets. And, and the city doesn't become necessarily a character in it, not, not the way I see the city. And I thought, no, what, what's here is a fairy tale. So I started thinking of everything in terms of fairy tales. So, you know, the Jeff character would be the sleekest, most modern, the most uh, photogenic and probably uncomfortable apartment. Uh, a, a bare, beautiful, but soulless place. So that's not a loft down, downtown. That's, that's the Metropolitan Tower next to the Russian Tea Room, which is a great razor blade slashing the sky into. Um, and then, you know, things like Mercedes. Her video shop is really the, the peasant woman's cottage in the forest where the, 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 the prince or king on the run would, would, would go. So her place is all colorful and light and earth colors at the bottom of these great uh, towers, but they're like, like tree trunks to me. And, and I just, so the whole thing started growing like that. The, the, the kingdom was, had this moat around it, i.e. east of the uh, River. So everything became about a fairy tale, visually, but in modern uh, terms. And so it made sense to me. And, and, and I just, I mean, if you're going to live in New York and deal with New York, it seems you're going to admit to that. This sore neck approach to living in New York. It's all there. Most people do it. They do Woody Allen movies, they slip straight ahead. And I, I've always thought New York was about that. Oh, God. Oh, Jesus. And it's, and it's, it's, it's an extraordinary place. Some of those beautiful tops of buildings, anywhere in the world exists here, nobody looks at them. Uh, they, over the last few years, they've been tarting them up with a bit of gold paint and 
things. And, and so, by, by conceiving it that way, it's like Perry's basement, you know, if you're going to be redeemed, you're going to die, so he's got to go below. Because I, I, that's how I started conceiving the film and working in all directions from that. Um, and ended up with a New York that seemed to be fresh to people's eyes. Especially New York, I think that was the great joy of watching New Yorkers come out of screenings of Fisher King and say, this is my city, I mean, I never knew it was like that. So that's, that's, that's very satisfying. I have another music question. I noticed you had a Tom Waits song in this movie. Mm. Did you choose that? If you did choose it, do you think you'd be doing any more work with it? Yeah, I mean, I chose Tom Waits. I just wanted Tom to be somewhere near this film. I think it's one of the great American monuments. And uh, I, I keep there's in the Defective Detective. There's a scene again that's all been written around Tom Waits' song "Temptation," which is on every which album. It's a tango. And I wrote a whole scene around it, so if we do Defective Detective, Tom, Tom's work will be there. Okay, right down here. Yeah, uh, it's uh, two questions, actually. The, the, the first is uh, completely separate. The first is I'd like you to talk about the foot. <laughs> <laughs> and the uh, uh, second question is uh, uh, in both Brazil and in 12 Monkeys, at least the way I see them, they come to rather bleak or sad conclusions. <laughs> and and uh, with, with, with Brazil, I found that quite exhilarating. With 12 Monkeys, I guess maybe it's I've changed a bit, but I, 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 was, I was like looking for maybe a little more hope. Now maybe it's just my reading of it. I mean, do you, do you see anything hopeful in either of those two endings? And if not, does that really reflect the way they do sort of see it? <laughs> so I don't think my writer's is such a The questions aren't so totally separate because the foot and hope are kind of interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the foot was always my very simplistic way of getting out of whatever was going on. <laughs> I mean, run out of ideas, squash it, you know, so you don't like squash it. It's, um, and, and it was, you know, and you probably know, I mean, it's a foot from a Bronzino painting, it's the foot of Cupid. And it's, uh, I just love the, you know, love's foot. Crush it all. And that was actually, what was interesting, I, mean, I don't know if I ever thought of it that way, until this very moment that it was actually love's foot crushing everything. Anyway, it's a um, very helpful question. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> I use these as psychiatric. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the other question, oh, hope. Um, yeah, I, Brazil is a Brazil actually started from the idea of can you make a film where the happy ending is a man going insane? That's what Brazil began, <laughs> and I thought I did because uh, I mean, of all the all the answers to whatever or likelihood, at least. He was in his own mind. He was able to create a world in his own mind. Whatever they did to his body, he won in that sense. And so, hopeful, yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's hopeful. I don't know if that word applies. But at least of all the possibilities available to him, I thought it was the only honest one and, 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 and the right one. Uh, as far as the ending in, in Twelve Monkeys, it's hopeful in the sense that Cole did his job. He got scientists there. 
in a sense, as he says several times in the film, is then going to get the virus and take it back, and somewhere in the future they will develop an antidote, and so those survivors who have been living underground for the last long time um, will be able to reclaim the planet. So that's hopeful, but it's a very long-term hopefulness. It doesn't mean that five billion people don't die at the end of 1967. I think they do. But it's <laughs> She doesn't go and save the people that may or may not. You just shove and take a virus and uh, pack it up in your bag and go back. Those people do die. As Cole says, you can't change the, the past. And he's been there and should know. Um, so that's yeah, hopeful in the long term. Okay. Um, all, all the way in the back, since we haven't been back there yet. Did you have any trouble with uh, Universal, considering that the ending wasn't, uh, was kind of downbeat? Oh, and this one? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's really a result of my former experience with the month on Brazil, that we agreed that uh, we could disagree. <laughs> uh, but there was a script. It always ended that way. And so we went into it and said, okay, you know, this is the script. We all agree. No problem. Done. Um, no, it's been, it's been, there's been no involvement. They've been very supportive. And everybody seems to be happy. The very tail end. <laughs> Okay, um, back all the way back. Uh, I was wondering whether um, you, you had any relationship to Chris Marcus. Did you no, I've never met him. And what's interesting, I talked to David Peebles this morning, and Chris had seen 12 Monkeys in Paris and, and called David to say how proud he was of the film. Which is really like, Chris Marker actually uh, agreed that. David and Jan could write a film inspired by La Jete. That's why it was left. He's, I don't want to know anything about it. You know, there's the film. There's some ideas in that film you might like to use. And David and Jan, you go the way to do it. So they wrote a script. Chris had actually, I think, read the script. And again, it isn't La Jete. I mean, that's what we, we went to a lot of trouble and a lot of trouble with the Writers Guild to get them to agree to a credit which just says inspired by La Jete. They only, before that, had credits based upon the film Lajete or from Lajete. They had a shortage of words in the writing field. Right? <laughs> 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 we expanded their vocabulary. <laughs> so will you see Lajete? Yeah, I've got to see it now. I mean, uh, <laughs> and I am really keen actually when I go to Paris, which we will to promote this thing, to meet Chris Marker. Because uh, everybody says he's an extraordinary. Actually, David said he's God. <laughs> Oh yes, if you can't change the past, then why uh, is Cole given the gun to try and shoot uh, the person with the virus? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the past. That's what happened in the past. He was given a gun, went and shoot a guy and got shot. That was the past. Let me change the past. That was the future. If you'd gone back five minutes earlier, what the future was, Cole was going to be given a gun. He could have tried to shoot a man. The but, man but why did they say the gun from the future in the first place? Why they what? Why, well, why did the people from the future give them a gun if they knew this was going to happen? Well, they didn't listen. You've got to assume that their knowledge is imperfect. They've got bits and pieces of knowledge. And, and, and it's, I think the assumption is, my assumption is they, they don't know a lot of the people from the future. <laughs> they're getting better. <laughs> but it's, um, they're, they're collating knowledge, information. It doesn't quite come through as clearly as we would like it possibly. So Jose was given. I mean, it's, 
It's, it's one that goes on. David and Jan and I have talked a lot about this. We're still arguing. David, so. <laughs> white cap. Yes. Um, there are 12 steps in drug rehab, and monkeys could be in drug addiction. So, was there, were there supposed to be drug undertones? And if not, where, why the name 12 monkeys? There's 12 apostles, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I honestly don't know why they chose it. I mean, that was, it's, I never even asked them that one. 12 monkeys, just, you know, it sounded nice. I mean, a decent dozen of uh, monkeys. And so, it maybe it's like the dirty dozen. It's just, I always, whenever I, when I first saw it, I thought 39 steps was what immediately came to mind. I mean, it's another red herring. It has the, the sound of a red herring from a long way away. So, no, I, actually, to be fair, Dave and Jan actually did work in psychi psychiatric hospitals as nurses at and, and, and so they know a lot about drug rehab and everything. So they may, there may be something in that, but, but the drug rehab step is probably based on the drug's labels. Do you have a favorite? As in, maybe it's the dozen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right here. Sure. Um, how did Brad Pitt develop that kind of a character? Was it your direction or his? Yeah. A couple things. I mean, we started because we talked about it, and I said the first thing he's got to be able to speak fast. So I, I, I got him hooked up with a guy named Stephen Bridgewater who trained Jeff Bridges in Fisher King to speak like a DJ. And Stephen just started training him like a, you know, a coach for the sprint, just vocally training him, which was a long, long arduous trip because Brad really hadn't really no vocal skills before. So he worked very hard at that. Then he started going to psychiatric institutes, checking out real loonies, and, so, and and developing a lot of stuff. No, I, I can't take credit for much of that at all. I mean, I, I take credit for talking like that a lot of time. But that's, that's me. It's, uh, and, it's, and I think trying to encourage him to keep his hyper behavior, but the ticks and all. It was wonderful because there was a long period of him preparing for this thing, and, and he was supposed to be sending me tapes of his progress, which he failed to do every time, which made me incredibly nervous because he was like, he's not going to be ready. And he arrived there. And what you see in the film, as we, when we first meet him in the film, and that whole scene, that was day one shooting, and he just exploded. It all made all this stuff. It was extraordinary. By the end of the day, it was like this limp right. Every take was this extraordinary energy that was coming out. And the eyes, the contact lenses with the, the, the skewed eye, all his ideas. I mean, he was... Brad gets credit for that one. I, I, I'm, as a director, I just hire the right people <laughs> and make it at least enjoyable over the years. Okay, right, right here. Uh, a question about Twelve Monkeys. Uh, that voice that comes in that's not the scientist's and it's, who is that? And number two, uh, what is it about clear plastic? <laughs> Seats that were sanitized for your personal protection with that clear plastic in the which at night, late at night, you came in drunk, you. The plastic was all, in this instance, it was not so much plastic, but latex, because like, there's this, you know, the mind, like, rid of viruses, key virus, AIDS, AIDS, condoms, and I was basically working from that, this idea that, you know, people. But it's an American thing, whether it's condoms or craft cheese, it's the wrapping of things in plastic, or three-piece sweets, you know, or your car, your new car, keeping the plastic covers on it. I've met so many people like that, it's this obsession. 
and it worries me because it's always this, this layer separating people from people, things from things. Ah, makes me crazy. And so, that, and the first part was the voice. And the voice is one of the great enigmas in the <laughs> Because, I mean, it's clearly a voice in his head. But the fact that this bum on the street has a voice that's very similar, if not exactly the same, may just be a coincidence. Or maybe not. But I think it is. Coincidence figure largely in life, so I like you know, keeping those things. We talked about that quite a bit. At one point, I was going to have, when Bruce was with, uh, the first time we meet Louie in the street, but we heard what you heard. We, when Madeline meets him later on and he speaks, he had a different voice. So the whole idea was, is it all versus mine? But then I thought, no, let's keep it even more enigmatic and just make people talk about this film one way or the other. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is, uh, physical problem about young Cole seeing old Cole? Or yeah. Is that, I guess that just is something. And you can travel in time, there's no reason you can't be two different ages in the same place. I mean, you, you don't have any problems with turning up, you know, one year or the other. It's, the idea, it, it's, it's very disturbing. That's what, that was really one of the great things to me in the film, was the idea that there is a person eight years old, there's a person 40 years old, and they're, they're in the same place. There's no reason, if you accept time travel, that cannot happen. It's easier to sort of accept it if it's in another place, in fact, in the same place. And the fact that the older version of the person is dying, is, is to me, was one of the great poetic moments. And that's what Chris Marker did, and that's that's what yeah, that's what was taken really. And that was almost the main reason for doing the film. I just thought that ending was so extraordinary, transcendental. Right here. My question is about the actors. I thought that uh, the best actor so far in the movie was Robin Williams in Fish and Game. Would, would you ever? If, if, if it would be possible for you to ever work, work with him again? Yeah, no, Robert's great to work with. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a good friend, so if the right thing came along, yeah, there's no question. I mean, but I don't work that way. I mean, I sort of work from, you know, either a script or ideas I've got, and then we write it out, and then we look at who the characters are, and then say who would be best for this. And it's very frustrating, because a lot of people like Robin, like Jeff Bridges, who I just love. And, or Mercedes Rule. I can't find parts for them in the things I'm doing. So that's the frustrating part of this business. Okay, right here. Are you a fan of Vertigo or was it just important to the plot? Yeah. No, I, I am a fan and it wasn't important to the plot. Uh, and what was, what was really, one of the great things in it was the, um, the Madeline's disguise. Because we didn't plan that. This is what's hard to understand, but in the, in the, in the, in the script, the character was a blonde and she had a dark wig on in the dreams. And because of Madeline, the dark wig went the way. And I didn't realize until we were shooting that scene that Jesus Christ, I mean, we're getting a Hitchcock movie here. We've got a Hitchcock blonde there. And, it's, and, it's, and then Mick Osley uh, kept the vertigo, the Herman music going on in the background. So the whole scene became a totally Hitchcockian scene. Then it got even weirder because we had a problem with the soundtrack because there was some wow on it. And so we had to get another version of it. So we had to look at the tape, find out where we got that song. Because all we had was a long, we had a disc of Bernard Herbert music, which we just lifted and stuck on there. And we went back to the, the, the film of Vertigo, which none of us watched at all. We just you pulled out the bit in the, in the forest. And, and there was the bit of music that we used in that scene in the foyer. And it's the moment when Madeline, in the film Kim Novak, comes out in the blonde wig. And it's cut shot for shot as we did it between Jimmy Stewart and him. 
And the cuts are almost exactly the same point. It was the weirdest thing to, to stumble on after we cut this film together, you know, months earlier before this was in. I was waiting to see the uh, stage cut come up. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 it got weird. No, you're actually not too far off because what I did, what I shot, again, with no reference to the vertigo, because I don't, I hadn't seen it here, was when they actually do embrace, I, I what was in the script, they sort of lunged into some sort of broom closet and, 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 and sort of incredibly passionate sex incurs. And I just didn't want to do it that way, it just seemed wrong. But in that foyer, it's a circular foyer of the Senator Theater in Baltimore, and around the top are all these figures, almost like in a carousel, and they're amazing. And, and so we actually shot this thing when they actually when they do embrace and kiss, and the camera was spinning around, so the whole background was turning around behind them, which is... Uh, Straight out of that, we didn't use it in the end, but I was quite, it was quite kind of extraordinary how like the ghost of Hitchcock was in the air that night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Back here, yeah. Um, are you working on a more uh, in the CD-ROM area? And as a traditional animator, how involved are you in the computer animator animation? Um, I, so. I am working on a CD-ROM uh, based on this book I did years ago, Animations of Mortality. It's, uh, Again, recycling a lot of old material. <laughs> the most ecologic, comically ecologically so. <laughs> anyway, uh, and in fact, we've been working on it for the last uh, few months with a company called Interactive in Washington, D.C. And uh, we're getting somewhere. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting process because CD-ROMs intrigue you because they're lack of linearity, if you choose to. I mean, you can really juxtapose things in the way my mind works. And it's, and we're, we're struggling our way through it. It's a very hard thing because, it's, because you know, it runs in the hands of um, programmers and things, it's, which I find frustrating because when, when I'm making films or you know, doing an airbrush drawing, I know the technology, I'm really good at the technology, so that when I make decisions, I'm, I'm, I'm making smart ones. This one runs in the hands of people that are dealing with some kind of magic and they don't understand the technology. Uh, uh, animation, I. I mean, directors are really good programs to knock out. I mean, I, the stuff that it was really hard for me to do now is so easy on computers, basically. But there may be, you know, on the other hand, sort of crudeness of what I did is its own charm, I think is the word. But, uh, but, and, 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 I, and there's a film I've been talking about doing, and I wanted to make it not smooth, but I wanted to make it almost like my cutouts. There's something raw and, 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 and childlike about it that you can't get or you can get with a lot of difficulty in computer. I find working on something like Adobe Photoshop taking longer than it takes for me to run over the Xerox machine, put, put something on there, color it in, cut it out, and stick it down, <laughs> and it's done. It was great fun, then hours later, I'm still on the Adobe Photoshop. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I got this incredibly expensive technology that works very slowly. <laughs> Two more questions. Right here. Um, well, a number of doors are bound to open again for you, so what are you, uh, this is, you're entering into superstition. And, uh, it's, I've got to be really careful. I keep talking about what I'm doing, and I'm, I'm determined after this. There are literally three projects that I could do, and they're all pretty close. And I'm terrified of talking about them. Mm -hmm. One of them is, is my own script, and that's the one that I'm hoping to take advantage of if this success continues. I mean, it's only been one day. But it's like the opportune moment to take advantage of it. 
It's like what I did have with Time Bandits in Brazil. Brazil was a film nobody wanted to do, but because Time Bandits is a big hit, zap it in there while they're, you know, while they're excited by what you've just done. Uh, you've got to take advantage of the moment. That's all I know. And the other projects can be done later. So we'll see. No names mentioned. Though. <laughs> okay. Um, right here. Last question. Have you uh, considered doing like Tim Burton did with Nightmare Before Christmas and getting involved in animation, not actually directing? Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the offers have come, but I, I don't know, I just don't, my mind doesn't seem to work that way anymore, frankly. It's, I, when I look at my animations, there's like another guy. I don't know, I, I, I sometimes amazed at things I was doing, but I, don't, I can't work it out. <laughs> but I was thinking at the time, uh, and uh, it, it may happen at some point, because uh, Tim Burton did a great thing, I mean, he got, I was it Harley, what's the name of that? Yeah, I mean, yeah. And I mean, all the work was done, and Tim just put his name on it. But the good thing was, <laughs> <laughs> the point was, I mean, you know, he, he got more credit than he deserved, but he got it made. That was what was interesting about it. Without Tim's name, it wouldn't have gotten made. And that's what was. It was also his style. Yeah, but the real work. I mean, I mean, he did some nice drawings, and I could do that. Maybe knock off the. But the real work is those animators. The work is phenomenal, and uh, and uh, yeah, it's a nice piece. One more bonus questions. I was wondering what it was like working with Harvey Kurtzman during the days of Help Magazine, and I was wondering how large an influence he was later on when he went to make films. I mean, Harvey was a huge influence. I mean, he was like an idol as a kid, you know, whereas with Mad Magazine, you know, and to actually come to New York and walk into a job was quite extraordinary. Because, uh, the Health Magazine was basically two people. I mean, well, there was Jim Ward, who was the publisher, who was the money. The work was Harvey and an assistant, who I, who I became. And then there was Harry Chester, who was the production man. And that was really what Health Magazine was. And we just gathered together whatever talent was out there. People were always submitting things. You know, like Bob Crumb's first work was published there. You know, Gilbert Shelton's work was there. And Harvey was, he was so, uh, he was just a sticker for detail. He was such a perfectionist. He was a totally honorable man in the way he approached things. And angry and funny. And, uh, um, and I just think I learned, I don't know how, everything from him. The sad thing was that he did his, what he, what he introduced to comic books was a, a cinematic sense where you, you zoom in, track it on things. He used the comic book like a movie camera. And all Harvey ever wanted to do was make movies. And then I was the one that ended up doing movies. <laughs> and he stayed in comics. And, uh, and, and one of the other great influences was, was Willie Elder, who was with Harvey all the time. Because I think that the overabundance of detail in my stuff is probably a result of Willie Elder cluttering up every you know, inch of the frame with more gags and details. Uh, but it is, it was, it was an interesting time because literally just, I sat in the office there and, and, and ran around to work. He stayed up in Mount Vernon in his attic there and occasionally would come in. And I don't know how he did this stuff. He was, he was, he was always in awe. That's what intrigued me. He was always in awe of famous people and big things. And, he, and yet he was you know, the center of many people's universe. He's very uh, shy and, uh, and just a brilliant, brilliant mind. I, and the sad thing was, I suppose I was working with him in his last good days. Because I thought, I mean, I met him when they were doing the first um, episode of Annie Fanny, which I thought, come on, what are you doing? This is crap. It's, <laughs> it's technically brilliant, but it's so far below the level of the work he had done before. There's something, but he had reached that point in his life where family and responsibilities, a very responsible man who did a lot of compromising 
as far as I was concerned, the kind of things he was doing to make a living to pay for his family. He was always worried about things like that. Uh, but he was, I mean, he was like a great mentor. In the eyes. He was always much serious, more serious than you'd expect. And, uh, and the nice thing was, just before he died, Joel Siegel said, was in here and said, you gotta come up, Harry's really bad. And, uh, and I said, I know, I can't bother him. So he got some trains when we drove up to Mount Vernon. And it was great, because it was the first time Harvey had been up for it. He stayed up late. Probably killed him, but he, said, <laughs> <laughs> but he stayed up late and he was enjoying himself. You know, one of those times, because uh, he had a very long, painful uh, death, I'm afraid. Um, but again, he was a great mentor because what he did is what few people do. He said, I'm not going to die in the hospital. It doesn't matter what they can do for me. And they had to bring him home, and he stayed in bed. He died with his family around him. Um, don't give me any pain, kill it, don't pay I go, I go. And I was one of the few people I met that did you find that. We're very grateful that he's back out under these horrible um, weather conditions. So please welcome Terry Gilliam. I see some familiar faces from yesterday. <laughs> I think you're the ones that deserve the credit for braving this. Uh, yeah, even God can't get in the way sometimes. <laughs> um, could you talk about the, we had given out the list of titles uh, that Universal recommended. Could you talk about your memories of receiving that list from, from the Universal offices? Well, it was, uh, and, and also, I guess, just how, when did Brazil become the title in, you know, in your head? And, and was it uh, always set yeah. No, the, the the list from uh, Universal was just sort of confirmed all my worst suspicions about the place, so I, I dismissed it pretty quickly. Uh, Brazil was, I don't know, the original title was either going to be the, the Ministry or 1984 and a Half, which is the one I really like. Uh, that would have been the most... Uh, apposite title, I think, but uh, then Michael Radford made his version of 1984, and they got it out before we did, so <laughs> Brazil, we got stuck with. Um, and the song originally wasn't Brazil, it was uh, Ry Cooter's version of Maria Elena was what originally the song was. Um, that was the first sort of Latin music that came to mind uh, over it, uh, and at what point it changed to Brazil, I have no idea. I mean, I have a bad memory about this film. It was... <laughs> Now, a lot of the discussion um, about the cuts had to do with the running time and mm. contractual um, problems about how long the film uh, yeah. was supposed to be. But was, I mean, was the running time the real problem Universal had? Well, the, it, the running time was the one legal uh, stick they could beat us with because contractually it was supposed to be two hours and 15 minutes maximum, and it was 2.22. So it was basically 17 minutes, so seven minutes over the limit. Um, and we had these meetings. They kept going on about the length. Strangely enough, one of the things, I tried to uh, get Spielberg's help on this one, because Sid Scheinberg, in many ways, Spielberg was Scheinberg's protege. He was the one that really um, backed him from the beginning. Uh, and I showed, after this disastrous meeting with the studio, after they'd seen the thing, um, and really were angry. I mean, there was a kind of anger in there. How dare somebody make something as awful as this? And, uh, um, uh, I, and they kept going on about the length. They said, the length is too long, it's too long, it's too long. So I said... 
called Stephen and said, can you look at this film? And we went over to Amblin and the two, of us, the two of us just watched it one night. And at the end of it, I put my hand over his watch and said, how long is the film? And he said, oh, I don't know, 92 minutes? I said, no, this is two hours and 22 minutes. So I said, it's not too long, is it? <laughs> now, can you just tell your friend Sid? And, uh, and not much came of it. Um, there were, in fact, rumors somewhere along the way when they were actually re-editing the film that Spielberg had been seen in the cutting room. So I, I've never been able to follow this one through, but uh, I don't. Anyway, what, the, the, the length was all they had to beat me with, and so I said, I'm not going to cut it. And, and, and Arnon Milcher, the producer, eventually, I don't know, why were, we were in Paris or something, and he said, you've got to do this. Uh, and so we trimmed it down, and, uh, and I presented it. And then it became even more stickly, because... They said, "Okay, fine, you've done it, but that's that's really not the problem now. It's it's you know the ending, and uh, and if you could do a happy ending, the film would be much more successful." I said, "Well, that may or may not be true, but that's not the story we agreed to tell, so I'm not going to do that." And and it was, it was it was interesting to see how Sid really had difficulty with this because he couldn't understand that I would want to harm my child in that way by not letting it reach the largest number of people to have the greatest effect. And I said, "Well, it's just unfortunately the story we agreed to tell." Um, and so we, again, they got into loggerheads and they wouldn't, the situation was they owed Arnie Milchon $4 million. They had to pick it up as a negative pickup and they refused to accept it. So it became a nightmare situation where he needed the money, blah, blah. And he eventually came and begged me on, in this, for the sake of his children's education to, to relent. And he said, here's a piece of paper. And basically the paper said that I relinquished my final cut. And I said, well, Arnon, you've supported me all the way through this thing. And if that's what really needed... And he said, the paper doesn't mean anything. It's just face-saving for everybody. And I said, okay, if that's what it is. And I signed my, my control away because I just felt I had to trust. It had been a relationship of trust. And so if you're going to do it, let's go all the way right to the end, right to the, over the edge with trust. And of course, the minute I signed the thing, I actually did lose control because I said, oh, it wasn't a joke piece of paper. It was real. And then Arnon was actually put in a position where he had to honor my trust, and in fact did, and ultimately, you know, we won this battle after like six months of battling. But it was, I just felt that's the way one's got to go. Uh, I, I know it's, 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 it's very foolhardy and, and probably might have been easier if I hadn't done it, but I just thought we've been a, we've, there's been this partnership and let's go all the way with it. Now, what, what happened, I mean, could you talk about the, the fact that Universal then had this film but was mm. deciding not to hold on to it and not let it into the theaters and um, it, there became this very bizarre mm. war in the press um, of course the Variety ad yeah. you took out saying Sid Scheinberg when, when will you release my picture yeah. the fact that the Los Angeles film critics gave it the best picture of the year award before it had been released, released. <laughs> so if you could just talk about some of the events of that bizarre month uh, at the end of uh, 1985 well it was, it was actually much longer than yeah. a month it was, it was several months it went on. But what basically happened because they then reneged on everything we actually tried to buy the film back from them they wouldn't sell it back so it got it became about people you know just standing there and, and butting heads it was positions that were being taken and, and somehow I think Sid felt that if, if I got away with this, the floodgates would open and, and creativity would overwhelm Hollywood and, and, <laughs> and they'd, I'll be out of a job, basically. It's, it's, uh, it, I think some fear like that was in his mind. And, uh, so they, we decided to try to get some help. And, uh, well, actually, no, to, I, I'm trying, I, the order eludes me a little bit, but, what, but it really came down to the fact that Arnon said, well, we've got to get lawyers. And I said, well, 
lawyers, that's no good because the studio's got all the time in the, in the world. They've got all the lawyers. They don't have to release this film. This film, they only spent, I think, $7 million uh, for that film. Uh, so it's nothing to them. And they're going to sit on So I said, that's why I took out this personal ad against Sid because I thought, well, we've got to do this personally. We've got to do you know, a public fight with faces and names and, and try to embarrass them, shame them into something. And that's why I took out the ad, the, the obituary frame notice there in Variety, which uh, it was really funny at the time. It was, seemed to be a very funny idea, and I called up them and said, I want a full-page ad, and I want it framed in black like a death notice, and then it'll say, with all this white space, it'll say, Dear Sid Scheinberg, I'm a very neat and nice type. When are you going to release my film, Brazil, Terry Gilliam? And, and then I saw it, the first day I saw it, when I got Variety, and, and you're looking, the pages are just crammed with numbers, zeros, dollar signs, ah, millions, billions in the first nanosecond. It's just, and then you come to this page and it's just empty. And this rather personal forlorn statement is there. And the place just went apeshit. Nobody's seen anything like that before. Anybody that, and I thought I'd really done it. I'd really hung myself at this point, but it was too late. And so we were in there. And, uh, and basically what happened is they took out an embargo against us showing the film anywhere in the country. We couldn't even, we were trying to get a, a PR firm to help us. They heard about that. That's it. Can't show it. And, and so we started doing things like taking out, making notices saying we'll fly because it had already been showing in Europe. Um, this version you saw was the European version. It had been, been seen there. And we said we'll fly legitimate journalists to, to Paris to see it. Or if they don't want to go to Europe, we will send them on a bus to Tijuana and they can watch it in Mexico. <laughs> and, and, it's, uh, we were, so, and it became this kind of strange joke campaign and Jack Matthews who wrote this book The Battle of Brazil was wonderful because he was writing for the, the Los Angeles Times and what he was what he very cleverly did was maintain a public dialogue between Sid and me because Sid and I we only had a couple of meetings we only spoke a few times in our lives uh, and so this public dialogue went on and he reported Sid very faithfully and he reported me so Sid was always happy to say to be reported properly but he was fighting a losing fight, because clearly it was like sort of a David Goliath situation, artist against the corporation, um, the little guy against the, 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 the big guys. And, and I just kept saying silly things. Sid would respond in a, in a dour, sort of boring way and say stupid things with his foot firmly in his mouth. And, and then I'd respond to that. And I, more and more, they became convinced we had a campaign. I had no idea what we were doing. I just responded to things and, and kept saying outrageous things. And to the point that I would go on, I mean, this is where like, Bobby De Niro was great because he doesn't promote his own films. And again, there's it's a sense of this kind of loyalty and trust that was part and parcel of the Brazil experience. And, uh, and Arnon said to Bobby, you know, we could really use your help. So we go on things like the Maria Shriver show and Joel Siegel's show with Bobby because they couldn't believe it. Robert De Niro, they could do an interview with. And we'd go on, they'd talk, and Bob would say some nice things, and they'd say, I hear you have a problem with the studio, Terry. He said, I don't have a problem with the studio. I have a problem with one man, and his name is Sid Scheinberg, and he looks like this. And I'd pull out a photo. <laughs> and, and so I, made, I was just determined to smoke him out from behind this corporate responsibility, this greatness. I mean, it the business of Brazil was the film of Brazil. Everything, all my films are like that. And, and they're, you know, Universal, MCA, their corporate headquarters are, is this black tower in L.A. that looks just like the monoliths in Brazil. Everything was like the film itself, replaying itself again and again. And we had, I, I remember, it was USC. Had, there had been a standing invitation for me to go and give a talk one day. And uh, 
And so I, I agreed finally to go, and I thought I'd bring some audiovisual aids along, and I brought my copy of Brazil with me, <laughs> this film that was, had an embargo against it, being shown in the States. And we got into, I mean, it's a very long, complicated story, but it was just outrageous there where the universal lawyer was on the phone saying, you can't do this, because the, the U.S., the guy, the projectionist, the guy in charge of the physical plant of USC Film School, USC is basically funded by the studios. Huh. So they had this hot potato in their hand. What do you do? Duck, don't show it. And so the guy said, we can't show it. And everybody was up and I was like, well, of course you've got to show it. I said, can't show it. And I said, well, can you call the universal people? And no, it won't call them. So I got my lawyer to call the universal lawyer. And they were doing this negotiation while I was up here talking about how you make films with Charles Champlin. And every five minutes I'd be hauled out because my lawyer was on the phone and saying, we're making some headway here, Terry. And I'd come back and report everything to all the students, exactly how films are made, i.e. lawyers with lawyers with lawyers. And... and and it was getting funnier and funnier. And the great thing, the universal lawyer's name was, I think it was Harold Middleman, which is, <laughs> again, just Brazil again. It was all there. Mr. Middleman was dealing with all this stuff. And I, and the projectionist wouldn't show the stuff. And I said, you know, people are dying out there. Five billion people are dying and you're not doing anything about it. I was raking up a lot of old coals. Uh, but basically it reached the point where there was an agreement between the, the lawyers that I could show clips from the film. And, but the dean of students that ran the, uh, the, the film school wouldn't take the call from the lawyer from Universal. He didn't want to be involved either. And the students, eventually, about 100 of them, got out and started barricading the door of the dean of students, banging, take the call, take the call, take the call. <laughs> and, and while all this was happening, Sheila Benson, who was a critic for the LA Times, and a few other people were there watching this, this extraordinary event. And there were a bunch of students from CalArts who, who said, Okay, we'll show it. And we took the film up to CalArts that night and showed it in a, in a room that was like half the size of this. It was, just, it was like the black hole of Calcutta. People were steaming in their crap everywhere watching this thing. And there were so many, they had another showing. It went on through the night and it got people interested. The LA critics got intrigued by this. And then we had another a secret showing over at Alan Hirschfield's house, who was the guy who was running 20th Century at that time. And a few other critics came and we showed it. And they realized, there's a rather important film here that's being shot upon by, from a great height by the studios. <laughs> and it, and we, they started a whole series of clandestine screenings with the LA critics. And, and the great, the great um, moment was the night of the premiere of Out of Africa in New York, because that was Universal's big film that year, $37 million, big stars, Sidney Pollack. They were all here in New York, and they were and tuck. The whole thing, and what was announced was the LA Critics, best picture, Brazil, best director, Brazil, best screenplay, Brazil, Out of Africa, zip. <laughs> and they, I mean, they just freaked totally. Um, because they had, they had made public announcements, Lou Wasserman, Frank Price, Sid Scheinberg, had all made public announcements that the film was totally unreleasable, it was unwatchable, and there they were caught in this impossible situation. And the film had to come, and it came out within a couple of days in New York, at 68th Street, and out in L.A. And they had no posters, they had nothing. They had Xerox copies of the, the artwork that was being prepared for the eventual showing of whatever their version was going to be. And, uh, and then it, you know, it did a lot of business. But then the, 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 the sort of sting in the tail was they, Lou, Sid, Frank, all these people, now thought they had a hit on their hands. And... And they rushed the film out to all these places out in the middle of nowhere who had never heard of this public battle. The battle was known of in L.A., New York, maybe Chicago, a couple other big cities. And they pushed it out of the place and nobody came because they didn't want to see a documentary about a South American country. <laughs> and they said, 
And so, you know, at that time around, it didn't really reach the audience we had hoped it would, but nevertheless, it, it's out there, and, and it survives everybody. It'll survive all of us. Uh, we're going to take some questions from the audience. I just wanted to ask what, how you and Sid are getting along now, and, and also with 12 Monkeys, just what was, how, how did the topic of Brazil come into your discussions um, well, again, Would Sid and I don't really, I mean, we have no relationship, and he's now at, at the, he's left Universal, and I'm there. <laughs> so, uh, and they, I think, I mean, it was all done at a lower level, 12 Monkeys, but I said, you know, listen, we've been through this once before with this company, and they said, oh, we're all different now. I said, uh-uh. And, and so I insisted that if we we're going to do this thing, I had final cut. I had control of the thing. I'm not going to go into it, and, that, and, and that's what happened. So it's been the result of... Brazil has been uh, a really pleasant experience, uh, so and and so everybody's happy. Okay, uh, let's we could bring yeah. up the house lights a bit and let's take some questions. Um, I have a, a two-part question. First, how were you able to obtain financing and studio backing in the first place? I love the film, but it doesn't strike me something you could easily pitch in twenty-five yeah. hours or less. And second, um, how would you explain the apparent lack of difficulty you had in Europe? Was it simply different contracts with different aesthetic? Basically, we got the money because Time Bandits had been a big hit in America, and and once you've made money, you know, you're you're a person of some importance. And 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 they were kept throwing offers at me. And there was this one film. I don't know if you ever saw a film called Enemy Mine. It was. Mm. Um, well, anyway, at a certain point, when we were trying to get Brazil off the ground. We'd gone around trying to, you know. Sell Brazil, nobody wanted to know. I mean, it's just ridiculous. There's no way we could make this. But I got caught in a situation where they were really keen for me to direct something, and they had this film called Enemy Mine, which, for whatever reason, they decided was the hottest property in Hollywood. It was, and, and they had gone through Spielberg and Lucas and all the guys, all the top guys, and eventually worked their way down the list to Gilliam down here. And it's, but what they, rather than saying Gilliam is you know, 49th on the list... They said, no, 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 hot property, got to have the top director. So I'm each, as each of these guys said no, I was elevated. And suddenly I became the hottest director in Hollywood with the hottest property. And they said, you can do this, and then you can do whatever else you want. And I said, no, no, I want to do this film Brazil. So Brazil, which had been totally you know, uh, ignored by them and, and, and misunderstood, suddenly they had to reread it in light of the fact that they had the hottest director with the hottest property wanting to do something probably even better. And, and so they reread Brazil. And Arna and, and I were down in Cannes, and trying to flog this thing. And, and again, it was sort of a dicey thing. We had a budget of $12 million, and, uh, and the interest wasn't hard enough, so we upped it to 15 to make it more of a, a classy project. And, and we ended up in a situation within a week of 20th Century Fox and Universal fighting for this film and paying us more money than we originally needed. And it just, in certain situations down there, the sun's shining, the wine is flowing, and they begin to loosen up, and they think... They get feeling artistic, some of those executives down there. And that's when they're weak and vulnerable. And we, and we struck. And, and, uh, and, and suddenly there we were with these two companies vying for it. So we split up the world. So 20th Century had the world, and Universal had North America. And Fox was very happy with the film, and they released it, and no problem. And that's really why we didn't have a problem in Europe and a problem in America. It was just two different companies we were dealing with. Uh, but the reality is the fact that it was out in Europe, it, was, it existed. So, I mean, Kenny Turan, who is a critic out in, on the West Coast, he wrote a piece about you know, the masterpiece or the classic we will never see, which you know, all those things helped enormously. Right down here. Yes, I have two questions, too. Uh, one, 
for the for those of us who haven't seen Brazil since its initial release, or at least recently enough, can you please tell us the uh, missing minutes that we are seeing for the first time today? Right. And the second question is, in view of your experiences with uh, Universal on this film, how does it happen that you have chosen to return to the screen with 12 monkeys all began working for Universal? <laughs> if I have a problem with Universal, uh. on a minor level. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the main missing elements are after uh, Sam's arrest. Because as you see, uh, when he's in, in bed with Jill, uh, and they cut the hole in the ceiling and grab him, what you see there is then, you know, it goes black, and then the bag opens, and it's his point of view, looking at the people who are now reading out the crimes. And suddenly he's now just this baggy being push through room after room of, of crimes that are building in their importance and, 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 and cost. Uh, and so that scene, and the one with um, uh, Mr. Helpman is, is, is Santa Claus in the wheelchair, which is, that was the one I really regretted losing for the States. On the other hand, what we gained was an incredibly powerful cut from Sam being grabbed to the pullback in the torture room, which was, whoa, which is slightly more powerful in the American cut. And then at the end, uh, as you see it, when he's sitting in the chair at the end, the clouds don't come in. In the American version, clouds fill the room. Now, the script itself had both endings, one with clouds and one without. So I could never make up my mind, so I got a chance to do both endings this way. And I like them both for very different reasons. I think one of the most interesting things was when we first showed it in the States in Chicago, a guy who had seen it in Paris swore that the European print had clouds filling up the room. And I thought, not true, but what I liked was the fact that he, he thought he had seen them, because that was what we were trying to, with the music, trying to make one feel. And it's great that what he felt, he thought he saw. And the beginning, uh, flying through the clouds of the, clouds of the beginning, are on the American one, which aren't on the beginning of this. So there, there are little differences like that, but the main thing were those, the scene in the, after the arrest were the main cuts. Uh, there's even a cut that I cut out on the, the day of the premiere in London, which is a scene of... Um, after they're finally in bed making love the next morning, and I cut it out at the last moment, and I've regretted it ever since. It exists in the European video version. <laughs> uh, and um, so there's, there's, at the moment, there's four versions of Brazil existing, and I, they're all slightly different in some of the, the good and bad points. The deal with the Universal was, you know, they offered me money, they offered me a great script, and they offered me total control, and I couldn't say no, <laughs> basically. Okay. Right here. I just have a quick question. You said there's three <coughs> versions. I can only think of three. This is one that we just saw in the United States, the one on the video. The no, the, the television one, the Sid Sheinberg version, because ultimately, oh, that's what I didn't say, is they were cutting this film, they denied the existence of another film, another version of Brazil, which they were cutting at the time. And what was interesting is, if you ever see Brazil on syndicated television with the commercial breaks and all, Watch it. That's the Sid Sheinberg version. It's 30 minutes shorter. It's cut out most of the dreams. It has a happy ending. And in a way, I was very glad that it finally got out there. Then people can actually compare it for themselves. They can decide, maybe Sid was better than me. I mean, there may be a possibility. But there it is. It exists. And I was so delighted that it went out there because it, because, you know, at least, at least allows people to see the way the studios think about things. I think the one thing that made me crazy, because I never watched it, and I had a tape for a long time, but I couldn't bring, bear, bear to watch it, and then I looked at it, and, and there at the front of it was sort of a little um, uh, a pre-credit sequence, which was using all the reviews from Time magazine and everything, praising Brazil before this other version of Brazil started up. And I really thought I should have 
Had I watched that earlier, I, I should have just taken him to court for misrepresentation because they, I think, overstepped the mark there. Mm -hmm. so, right, uh, right here. How did you come up with some of those sets? Uh, which ones in particular sets? The one, uh, the torture room. Okay. Ah, the torture room. Now, this is interesting. This is how, you know, I, I start with very clear ideas. And one thing about the ministry was that the more you got into the center of it, the more simple rectilinear square it was. And the torture room in, in the script was in fact a, a cube, a white tiled cube, uh, about 40 foot square um, with a chair in the middle. And, and that's what we were going to do. And then we were looking at locations in this uh, power station in London called, uh, it was Croydon Power Station, where we used a lot of our stuff below, all those, those great machine things which were there. And next to the power station were those great cooling towers you see on the horizon around there with the great smoke building up. These were disused ones. I'd always wanted to look inside. And I opened the door and there is what you saw. And so I changed my whole rule about what was the center of the, the, center of the ministry became this great space because it was such an extraordinary space. And so I break the rules. It was actually, it was, one of the, it was almost like a religious space in the middle of that. When you're sitting in that chair and looking up, you see this perfect circle of sky way up there, and occasionally a cloud passes by, or a plane, and it's, it's, it's wondrous. I used to sit there at the end of the day, just... <laughs> <laughs> okay, over here. With 12 months, you worked again with Roger Pratt, your lighting cameraman. Can you tell us a little bit about the process working with him as far as translating these fanciful ideas of the, the technology, specific shots, and lighting? Uh the new issue of American Cinematographer as an extended interview, <laughs> which probably has more useful facts. It's such a, it's such a, you know, an easy relationship. We just, my, I create problems for by using very wide-angle lenses, so there's no place to hide the lights. So that almost becomes the determining factor. Where do you hide the lights? And then, and it's, 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 it's I don't know, I don't even know how we work, to be honest. I mean, I just start with ideas, we have pictures, we find locations, we start talking, say, oh, it'd be easier if, you know, a lot of it's very pragmatic, it'd be easier if we had a window there, because then I can light it, okay, fine, you want a window there, you got a window. Uh, and it's, and it's, you know, it's, it really comes like, we, in Brazil, we played a lot with, you know, within each shot, there's both warm and cold light, which you hadn't seen much before this, I mean, Ridley always does this sort of backlit blue, you know, like the Spielberg, and they said a whole style, Brazil, we used very, Basically, I approached Brazil as if I was doing a German Expressionist movie. So the sets have that kind of angularity. But then rather than doing it black and white like a German Expressionist movie, let's go for German Expressionist colors that the painters used at the time. So there's these, you know, these reds and greens, and, and, these, and, and we just started building it that way. Uh, it's, I don't know how we do it. I mean, we just go there and I say, oh, it would be nice if there was more light going up. <laughs> it, is, it is the most... Roger had to do this... American cinematographer interview, and he was terrified because he's—I don't know what to say. You know, Storaro can talk about all these different colors and everything, and and he's wonderfully analytical about why and what he does, and has all these theories. And we just don't work that way. You know, it's just we just do it, and it, it feels right. It's just—it's very much like doing a painting. You don't think about it. You just go, and, well, that color looks good there. Well, it's a bit over there, and well, let's stick the camera here. Oh, that's a good idea, but that creates a problem. And we build—we effectively build paintings every time we stick a camera somewhere and uh, what's interesting is by working with these extremely wide angle lenses it creates a whole set of problems there's a, there's a lens we used in Brazil which is a 9.8 millimeter lens which is like Whoa! you see the other world and, and, and your backside at the same time it's just, <laughs> and, it's, and what I like about it is when I'm looking at the camera I really feel I'm in 
in there, and it's, it, it, it's, it's almost tactile when I look through it. And, but one of the things about a 9.8, it tends to you know, bend the perspectives, which is very useful sometimes to make the sets look more vertiginous or whatever. But we had one scene where Jonathan, when he walks into Mr. Helpman's office, when he actually does the, the, the lifting, here I am, J-H, and then comes out and opens the door and walks in. Now the problem is it bent, it bends the sets like that, so all the vertical are going in like that. And it looked really funny when he walked in because it looked like he was bending. So I actually had him walk in at an angle. <laughs> so he's walking like this. And, and as he approaches the center of the lens where the verticals start becoming vertical again, he would straighten up. <laughs> and, and that's how we work. We're sitting here and every, some people are going to write about this in the future thinking, you know, these great guys sweating and pondering. It was just fun. It, was just, it just looked so silly. And so you don't even think it's a wide-angle lens. It's, it became a game of how you can use wide-angle lenses without them looking like wide-angle lenses. Okay. Over here. How do your screenplays find you? <laughs> That's actually a very smart question. <laughs> I mean, because I, I don't know how they do it, but I, I, I kind of know that movies make themselves, and I, find, I, I really do feel I'm like the hand that writes. But uh, it's just... Ideas, they come to me, or I look at things. I actually find almost everything I'm doing is basically a documentary. It doesn't look that way, but it always comes from real things. I see pictures that excite me, interest me. Ideas sort of float, and they all seem to go, sort of stick in, in, in ways. And I, I approach it in a very strange way. I just sort of leave the antennae open, and things sort of stick in. A lot of times I'll just drag ideas up, and they'll sit on the desk for, for months trying to find their way into the movie, and some of them do and some don't. And when the movies are being made, I just get into a very strange state about it, because a million mistakes are happening, but the mistakes seem better than my, my plans, and it's almost like the movie's got a better idea of what it should be than what I do. Um, I've never worked this one out. <laughs> Okay, unfortunately we just have time um, for one more question and then we're going to stop. Do it. So. <laughs> Over here? Yeah. Um, the uh, Criterion Laserdiscs for Munchausen and Fisher King are terrific and I've heard that there's a result one coming. What's the status and what's the version that's going to be on? Uh, hopefully it's going to happen. Uh, and we're having to be very cautious about it because things went wrong a couple of years ago. Uh, things were announced too soon but I think it's going to happen. And I just want to make a version that's unlike any other version, so there'll be five versions of Brazil out there. <laughs> I want to use some of the stuff from the American thing and some there, and I want to put that scene that I cut out at the last moment. Um, I won't change that much, but I, I'm just going to decide about a few things. So it'll be the longest version. It doesn't mean it's the best. It's just the longest. And, because I, and there's a thing I was saying to David, I hate the world of director's cuts, because a lot of people think this American version is not the director's cut, and the European is the director's cut. They're both the director's cut. My name's Autumn. I cut it. I take responsibility for it. And I'm happy with both of them for different reasons. Um, and there's a whole wonderful world of how do you market a film again? You, know, you, you discover the lost director's cut. And suddenly it's like the grail. You know, suddenly we found the true, yeah, one of the real nails from the cross. It's the real one, not the one that it sort of missed. It's, uh, it's uh, not the one that got bent and pulled out and nailed. It's, you know, it's like, it's, and it's, there's a lot of bullshit about all this stuff. And it drives, drives me crazy. So uh, I, it seems to me if a director puts his name on the film, that's the director's cut. And that's the way it should be. And directors should actually take responsibility, not sit and moan, piss and moan about how they were forced to do something. That's, oh, boy, am I angry. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.